Hello and welcome to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalina Hai. Well, it's been many months since the last show aired, and while I had intended to release the fifth season of the show over the summer, it turns out that life had other plans. Amidst all the lockdowns and restrictions, I ended up somewhat accidentally embarking on the journey of writing a new book, which if you've tried it, you'll know how extraordinarily all-encompassing it can be. While I'm not able to talk about the book just yet, what I can say is that in exploring this new territory, I wanted to curate a set of conversations that can offer a different way of imagining what new regenerative systems might look like and how we as individuals and communities and businesses can help to shape this. I'll be revealing more about the new book in the coming months, but for now, if you'd like to know more about the podcast, you can find additional resources and links at natalinahigh.com forward slash the Hive podcast. And you can also reach out to me on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn at natalinahigh. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Today's guest is Alan Watson Featherstone, an ecologist, nature photographer, and inspirational public speaker. In 1986, he founded the award-winning Scottish conservation charity Trees for Life, and was its executive director for almost 30 years. During that time, it became the leading organisation working to restore the Caledonian forest in Scotland, and took ownership of the 10,000-acre Dundregan estate in Glenmoriston as its flagship project for native woodland recovery. Through his work with Trees for Life, Alan helped to provide the inspiration for other ecological restoration projects, both in the Scottish borders, on Dartmoor in England, and for the creation of the Yendigaya National Park in Tierra del Fuego in Chile. He also founded the Restoring the Earth project to promote the restoration of the planet's degraded ecosystems as the most important task for humanity in the 21st century. Alan regularly contributes articles to various professional and popular publications, and he also writes a blog at alanwatsonfeatherstone.com forward slash blog. His photographs have appeared in publications such as Time magazine and the Encyclopedia Britannica, and he's currently working on a high-quality photographic book project about the endangered Araucaria, the monkey puzzle tree, in the forests of Chile. He's given lectures at events and conferences in more than 20 countries worldwide and has received a number of awards for his work, including the Schumacher Award in 2001, the Spirit of Scotland Environment Award in 2012, and the RSPB Nature of Scotland Outstanding Contribution Award in 2013, whilst Trees for Life was recognised as the UK Conservation Project of the Year in 1991. He's also been vegan for over 40 years and lives in an energy-efficient, ecologically-designed house in the Findhorn community in the northeast of Scotland. I'm very excited to be speaking with Alan today, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. So, Alan, thank you so much for joining me today on the show. I wanted to start by asking you from your perspective, what do you think is happening in the global human psyche right now? Okay, thanks, Natalie, and thanks for the invitation to take part in this podcast. I hope I can provide some useful and interesting answers. So um, in terms of that question, what's happening in the global human psyche right now, I think we're really at a critical time in our evolution as a species where, in my view, what's happening is we're seeing the birth of a new level of human consciousness and expanded human consciousness, a consciousness that's been accessed by people in the past, the people we know as saints, gurus, spiritual teachers, enlightened ones. But now, because of development of technology, communication systems, the sharing of knowledge, and the situation in the world, that level of consciousness is now accessible to people everywhere if they choose to access it. So that, to me, is the critical thing that's happening. And one of the drivers for it, of course, is that we're in the end time of the world as we know it, the system that we know it of so-called Western civilization, which is now global civilization. And to me, it's a bit like the transition from a caterpillar to a butterfly. 
Now, we know that a caterpillar goes into a cocoon and in that cocoon, the body of the caterpillar breaks down and changes completely and is transformed into a butterfly. What I see in the world today is that many of the things that we're familiar with, the systems that humans have set up, um, the natural world as well, many things are breaking down. And that process of breaking down is very difficult to live with, but it is one of the drivers for what I see as this birth of a new consciousness. I love the optimism there and also pointing towards the discomfort that can happen in change, especially with the idea of the caterpillar and the cocoon, which is very striking. Because, you know, when we're in that dark place and everything is literally reforming itself and the cells are doing their thing and you're basically breaking everything down, it can be really frightening because without a clear vision of what comes next, it's very easy to become overwhelmed with the grief of what you're losing and perhaps a lack of clarity or vision as to where you're going. With your work, especially the founding of your inspiring project, Trees for Life, which you started back in 1986, it strikes me that you're one of the people who is on the very front line of those envisioning what could be possible if you had the boldness to imagine a different future. What was it for you that spurred you into this work to begin with, whether it's Trees for Life or the work that came before and after? I think the the essential thing for me was um, when I came to live in the Findhorn community. Uh, I arrived here in 1978, initially as a visitor, uh, drawn by the work that had been done here in the early 60s of people growing a garden and meditating and getting in touch with what they felt was the consciousness of different plant species and receiving messages, um, which gave sometimes very clear practical instructions about, you know, the comp- uh, the cabbages need more compost today, but many of the messages were much more philosophical and about the need for humans to create a new relationship or to recreate a relationship with nature that was based on cooperation, harmony and co-creation rather than exploitation and domination. So I came to Findhorn inspired by that. That resonated deeply in my heart. But when I arrived in the community, I discovered something perhaps even more significant, which was some of the answers to questions I've been asking myself for a long time, such as how can I really make a positive difference in the world? How can I change the things that I think are so wrong and help to create a world that I would believe in, that my heart would be in? And previous to coming to Findhorn, I'd been trying to change the world out there. So it had been, you know, protests, demonstrations, uh, campaigns against nuclear weapons, against, you know, big oil companies, pollution, protesting about military dictatorships, all that sort of stuff. I, I did all that. And of course, I had zero result to show for it. Nothing had changed. In fact, the situation was continuing to get worse. But for me, the critical thing was discovering through being in this community that real change has to start from within. It cannot be imposed on others from without. And that if I was not willing to make my own life a reflection of my values, of my passion, my spirit, my care, my love, how could I expect anybody else to do that? So that started me on this conscious journey. And that was crucial because it enabled me to begin to discover my own power as a human being. And rather than feeling like I was a a helpless, innocent victim, you know, at the mercy of all these big forces of institutions, governments, um, corporations, you name it, I was actually in charge of my life and I could make my life a reflection of what I really believed in. And in the course of doing that, it was about really finding out, well, what do I really care about? What am I passionate about? And how can I start to bring that into daily experience in my life? And a lot of that had to do with conscious contact with nature, being out in nature, which is something I'd been doing prior to coming here. And it was one of the reasons why I was inspired by this, you know, this news about Findhorn and the work of co-creation with nature. But when I started going out into nature and opening myself more, I began to discover some of what I call the lost birthright that almost all humans on the planet have lost today. And that birthright is daily contact with wild nature. That was the inheritance. That was the reality of most human beings for most of the time that Homo sapiens has been a species on this planet. It still is today for small groups of people, the hunter-gatherers left in remote parts of the Amazon or in Borneo, perhaps the Bushmen in South Africa and a few others. But most of us have lost that. So in reconnecting with that, I began to develop my own personal connection with nature. 
And it was from that sense of connecting deeply that I began to see this dying forest in Scotland with new eyes. I began to notice that it was only old trees. There were no young trees. Uh, there were seedlings, but they were all getting eaten. And the old trees were at the end of their lives. They were dying of old age, naturally, nothing wrong with that. Um, but what was wrong was that they were not being replaced by any new ones. And that had been happening for 200 years, leaving what I called the geriatric forest, this remnants of old forest, venerable beings, like going to an old people's home, seeing people at the end of their lives, but there was no new generation to replace them. And I felt I didn't get a message or words, but I just had this overwhelming sense of the land and the trees was calling out for help. And for a couple of years, I kept thinking, why is somebody not doing anything about this? Why is the Forestry Commission, you know, it's their job to grow trees. Why are they not doing something about it? Or the Nature Conservancy Council, as it was then, their job is to protect nature in Scotland. Why are they not doing something about it? And after a while, I began to realise, well, I get this, I get this feeling, maybe I have the responsibility to do something about it. Uh, I see it, maybe I'm that person to step forward and act on this. So that was how it began. I did that in 1986. I spent the year organising a big conference on the environment here in Scotland. It was called One Earth, A Call to Action. We had 240 guests come for a week, plus community members. There were 300 people there. And it was based on the premise that we know the problems of the world. It was the year of the Chernobyl nuclear accident. The environment was up in public attention. But we also knew the solutions. We knew how to get energy from the sun and the wind. So there's enough food to feed everybody. It's not distributed equitably. Uh, all that sort of thing. So we knew the problems, we knew the solutions. The bit in the middle was the will, the commitment to act, to implement the solutions, to make changes. So our event was designed to address that. And in the final session, we asked anybody who felt inspired to stand up in front of 300 people and make a commitment to do something for the planet, something positive. So mine was to launch a project to restore the Caledonian forest in the highlands of Scotland. Now, that was quite an audacious thing to do because... A, standing in front of 300 people and saying something like that is, you know, is quite a step. But what was audacious about it was I had no experience in forests. Um, I had no training. I had no, I had a degree in electronics, which I've never used, but it's not much help for growing trees. I had no access to land. Land in Scotland is more, in the Highlands, is mostly owned by big absentee landowners. I had no resources. I had no money. On a physical level, I had nothing to achieve that goal. But what I had was what I believe is the most important things. I had the passion and the inspiration and this deep connection with uh, my heart, with the land. And I'd been in the Fintorn community by, for eight years by that time. So I knew that if I could follow that, my experience was having done smaller things. If I could do that, I could liberate my passion and my power. I would inspire people and support would come. And that was that was really the, the start of this pivotal journey because we live in the moment in a world in which it operates under the old system of power, the old power, which is power over others. And that power is it's the rich over the poor, it's the whites over the blacks, it's men over women, and it's humans over nature. And that is power that aggregates and concentrates in smaller and smaller numbers. Capitalist system is a great example of it. And the majority suffer as a result of it because they're exploited to create that centralization of power. The power from within, though, is something completely different. Because when I tap into the power from within me, I'm tapping into my essence, my spiritual self. I'm tapping into all that is the, the essence of the universe, which I'm an expression of and you're an expression of and we're all expressions of. And when I give voice to that... It's like I tap into all that power that's out there and I can become a vehicle, a channel to express that. And there are no limits to that. And that power from within does not suppress or oppress or diminish anyone else. And that's the difference. Instead, it inspires and touches others. Because when you see somebody do something, it's like, well, if they can do that, I could do whatever my dream is. I look at somebody like Greta Thunberg, you know, 17-year-old, you know, she's got Asperger's syndrome. You know, most people look, well, she's a kid, she's handicapped, but she's found her power. She speaks her truth, she speaks her heart. And that is how the world is going to change when people find their power and have the courage to express it and give voice to what they really care about, what they love. Because when we give voice to that, it brings those qualities present in the world. And when we act 
on that basis when we do something with love, whether it's planting a tree or it's um, caring for a sick person or growing vegetables in your garden or cleaning a toilet. When it's done with love and care, the spirit of love becomes a little bit more embodied in the physical structure of the planet. And that resonates with people and it supports people and nourishes people. I love this idea of the courage to voice that and to get to that place of love. One of the things I want to ask actually is about this idea of courage, because I think as your story beautifully illustrates, you can feel as though you have nothing resource-wise in terms of money or land. Um, Perhaps some people feel they don't maybe even have the emotional bandwidth right now, because there's just so much information about the troubles that we're facing in all parts of the world. What would your suggestion be to people who are listening to this and thinking, oh, that really moves me. I would love to do something that allows me to be an expression of love or to find some way of channeling a purpose that's going to to help myself and others. What would you suggest to them to help them access that if they're feeling overwhelmed or afraid or confused? That's a really good question because I think many people feel paralysed or um, diminished or helpless in the face of fear. And there's fear is being ramped up in the world, you know, constantly. It's one of the one of the ways that the present system uses to control and suppress people. So I think there's many ways, you know, for people to actually move beyond that. For some people, um, meditation really works, taking time to be still, to realize that we're not just physical beings with emotions and with thoughts, but there's actually a deeper core to ourselves and to connect with that, to align with that, because that is that is our entry point into the connection with the universe, with all that is. Quality time in nature works for many people. For some people, it's physical exercise. It's going for a morning run or, you know, uh, extreme sports even, or something like that, that take people out of their normal state of consciousness. Other people use recreational drugs, you know, to get beyond the normal state of consciousness. So... Uh, All of those things, if they're used clearly, safely and purposefully, help to reach and see through the illusions of our modern day world, which, you know, keep things in place the way they are. And then if once people do that, uh, if they get a sense, I often say to people in your wildest dreams, if there were no problems, if there were no limitations, if there were no obstacles in the world, what would you do? And that's exactly what you should do. Oh, really? See, that strikes me with a little bit of fear and also excitement and then sadness that I'm not doing that. Mm -hmm. I believe we're all here on earth on purpose. You know, I live in a spiritual community. I am a spiritual person wearing a physical body for, you know, 66 years so far. Who knows how many more I've got. Uh, But I believe I'm here on purpose And that purpose is twofold. It's to fulfill my individual potential as a human being, to express my true essence, my spiritual self in my own life. And that's my own personal growth process from a soul perspective. But I'm also here to serve, to help this time of transition in the world. I think I've, on some level, I've chosen to be here at this time because I have something to offer. I have something to give. And my challenge is to find what is it that I've got to give And then to offer that gift as widely and clearly and wholeheartedly as I can. That's why I'm here. And I believe that's why I'm on this podcast today, because on some level you have tuned into that. I don't know how you heard about me or contacted me, but here I am. And this is one of the ways in which I can do this, because I can speak my truth. I can share my passion. And every time I do that, my passion grows, my truth becomes clearer, and I grow as a person. I become a bigger person. I'm a small man. I'm five foot four in height, you know, but I feel like I'm a big person because everybody is a big person if we just allow ourselves to be big by opening our hearts and really being true to ourselves. So coming back to your question there, it's about if there were no obstacles in the world, what would you do? and find a way to start doing that. It may be a small step initially to something that's big, that's ridiculous, that's never been done before. Well, that is the path of life. We all start in this uh, life, you know, as a newborn infant coming out of our mother's womb, helpless. And we have to learn to eat, to drink, to control our bowels. At a certain stage, we have to learn to walk. 
we can see other people walking, but as an individual, every one of us has never walked. We crawl. And at a certain stage, each one of us stands up on our two feet and we fall over and we probably cry and hurt ourselves, but we keep doing it and we learn to walk. So in a sense, it's continuing that process. Most of us, I think, when we get to adulthood, we say, okay, well, that's a, our education is over. We're now, we're grown up. We know everything now. <laughs> but it's actually that stage of reaching adulthood is actually just a stage of our own spiritual development because when our bodies reach physical maturity and we've developed our minds and we've, you know, we know our emotions, then is the time when we can start applying ourselves to our true purpose. The real work begins. I guess the question then is, as I've often gotten into discussions about this with friends, the conversation then is around when you're raised in a certain context, how do you find ways to tune back into yourself when systems are structured in such a way as to serve the ideology that's enforced from the people that it benefits? So I think this idea of bursting through or... Um, trying to skin off layer by layer these illusions or ideas about how we feel or think we should live to get to that place of understanding of how we feel moved to live in some of the ways that you've described is really important. Yes, and I would say that's one of the main reasons why I've chosen to live here at Fintorn. I've been here for 42 years now, um, which is, you know, almost all my adult life because I'm surrounded by people who have a similar set of values. We don't all think the same. We don't all agree, but the general principle is the same. We're spiritual beings. We're here on a journey of self-discovery and we're here to serve. And each one of us is, our individual journey is different because we're individual beings, but we're all heading in the same direction. And when we do that in a, a mutually supportive, reinforcing environment, that counteracts what you just described as, you know, all the, the mainstream distractions and um, deliberate actions that kind of keep people in a state of disempowerment. Yeah, so I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the extraordinary things that you've been able to achieve through your work and actually speak to the question that you asked earlier, which was about how I discovered you. So there are two places that I came across you and your work. The first was actually in an article for The Guardian, which was talking about Trees for Life and their programme called Rewild and Recover, which invites refugees and people who are coping with poor mental health or homelessness to plant native saplings and to help rewild the 10,000 acres of the highlands that it works with. And I read about that and was thinking about the role of nature connectedness and ecotherapy in our feelings of well-being and reconnection. And then I read George Monbiot, journalist and author and environmental activist. And I read his book called Feral, which came out several years ago now, um, which also speaks to efforts to rewild our beautiful planet. And in that book, he mentions you by name. And it was just such a captivating story that I really felt I wanted to reach out and hear a bit more about what were some of the biggest challenges that you faced when, after standing up in front of those 300 people, you decided that this would be what you would do. How did you actualise your vision, or at least start on the path towards what later would become Trees for Life? Well, that's, that's a great question, because I think you know, anybody who is seeking to do something positive in life or make a big change or activate a big dream has to face that. <laughs> so I think looking back now, I can kind of smile. But at the time, it took me three years before <laughs> any practical action happened. <laughs> I really had to learn three of the qualities that Eileen Caddy, one of the founders of Findhorn, always emphasised, patience, persistence and perseverance. So after I made that commitment, I find this is in general, but in this case as well, you know, when you do something, stand up and say something positive, it's like, you know, people support it. So people came up to me and said, oh, that's great. Here's five pounds, you know, to get you going. Or why don't you write an article for this magazine that I have a friend that edits or come and give a talk to my group? So, of course, I did all those things. And each time I did something like that, I wrote an article or I spoke to a group. I was verbalizing my vision. I was expressing my vision. It was coming closer to reality. And I was creating a network, if you like, if you think about, you know, the roots of a tree growing in the soil or a fungus growing in the soil. Uh, you don't see all that. You only see the mushrooms when they come up in autumn or when the tree starts to grow above ground. But that was part of building that sort of support network. 
So that took time. I had to educate myself. I didn't know what to do. So I made appointments to meet with people who knew about the Caledonian forest remnants and somebody who'd done some work in the 60s. You know, I went out several times with him so he could explain what he'd done and why and why he hadn't done other things. So that took time. Um, I began to get some money together. But I ran into a big obstacle because at the time I was part of the Fintorn Foundation. And when I started talking about raising money to plant trees on other people's land, people said, well, we're a charity. Are we allowed to do something that would benefit private landowners? So it ended up saying, well, the advice was you can do that if it's in line with your charitable purpose. But the Fintorn Foundation at the time had its purpose of spiritual education and personal growth. It didn't mention anything about the environment <laughs> or nature. <laughs> so we had to amend the trust deed of the foundation. That took a year. <laughs> so this is patience, persistence and perseverance. But in 1989, um, I managed to get agreement from a private landowner to protect a few naturally occurring pine seedlings with tubes to keep deer away from them and met somebody from the Forestry Commission who managed land in Glen Affric. And I went out with him and I found these areas where there are thousands and thousands of seedlings a few inches high all getting eaten by deer. And I said, look, you know, this area is crying out for a fence. I've got enough money to put up a fence, but I don't have any land. And this was a young man at the time. He was fairly new. And I think it was a bit of a miracle he said yes. <laughs> <laughs> because I was this, you know, person living at Fintorn, this spiritual community, which many people sort of looked askance at. Um, I had a full head of long hair down to my shoulders and a big beard, no experience in forestry. And here I was approaching the, the Forestry Commission, the professionals. But he said, yes, let's do a project together. And I'd raised enough money to fence off 50 hectares of land. The Forestry Commission had the fence installed. We paid for it. And uh, in 1990, David Bellamy, who was then kind of like the most prominent environmentalist in the, the public media attention, came and closed the gate. And that was really the turning point because up till then, it had just been me as a slightly eccentric looking individual with this big dream and nothing to show for it. When we closed the gate. I was there with people from the Forestry Commission. Uh, because we had David Bellamy, we could only get him on site because he had a short window of time. We had to hire a helicopter. <laughs> Not very ecological, but because we got the helicopter and David Bellamy, we got BBC Scotland television. We got Grampians television there. We got the Guardian newspaper to run an article. And I was on Radio Scotland and suddenly it was like, wow, you know, and that was the key moment because when you have a vision especially a positive vision, when it becomes grounded and actualized physically in the substance of the planet, it becomes much more magnetic. So as soon as we had something to show for it, it's like, oh, wow, there's somebody, he's doing something here. And uh, that then led on to a, a number of things. I got an agreement to do more fences with the Forestry Commission, also with private landowners. David Bellamy suggested enter the Conservation Project of the Year competition, uh, which my foundation runs. We entered that and we won. And it, it kind of snowballed from there. And the critical thing was, you know, the positive vision, getting it into form, into physical actuality. And this is going back to this conference again in 86, you know, we knew the problems, we knew the solutions, but there was no commitment to act, nothing being implemented. And as soon as you implement something, energy flows in that way. At the moment, the world is set up so all the energy flows into destruction. You know, all the banks are financing you know, destructive activities. Everything is set up that way, even though some of the people doing it may not agree with it. That's just the way it operates. But when you can set up something where energy flows in a positive direction, it lifts people's hearts. It gives them a sense of hope. And I think it also engenders, well, if Alan Watson Featherstone can do that, maybe I can do this. Mm, making it possible for other people. Power of a positive example. So that fence went up in 1990. It was a bit under four years after I made the commitment. And it seemed like forever at the time. It seemed like, well, but um, the key thing is, you know, in making a commitment, it's easy to stay true to it when energy is flowing and things are working. The real test is when obstacles and challenges appear. This thing about, you know, well, our trustee doesn't allow us to do stuff on private land. You know, I could have said, OK, well, nice idea. I'm just going to give up and do something else. But I didn't. I stayed with it. And my experience is if the calling that I'm responding to is the true calling of spirit of my heart, if it's really something that serves, if I stay focused on that, 
when the obstacles appear, there's always a way around. There's always uh, some way for the energy to flow. It might be different and unexpected to what I was thinking of, but there's always a way because that is, it's like water flowing down a mountain. You know, after a torrential rainstorm, there might be a log jam somewhere and the water builds up and the pressure builds up. But sooner or later, it's going to find the water will find its way through or around or underneath or over the top. And it's like that, too, for me, with the flow of spirit. If I'm really giving voice to something that serves um, the expression of higher values, there's always a way for it to come into being, even though the way I was thinking of might appear to be blocked. It's an interesting thing to speak to about the sense of wanting to bring something that's aligned with a higher value and to being. And I think part of what you're describing also, the, the modelling of its possibility of being able to do something which is seemingly so difficult or so material and to create a vision which then other people can tangibly grasp and then become a part of in terms of supporting what it is that you're doing. I'd like to ask a little bit actually uh, something related to that about your other projects. So one of the other projects, which is called Restoring the Earth. Can you tell us a bit about what it's about and the vision that you hope to accomplish with it? Great. Thank you for asking that. So um, in the sort of 1990s, as the work with Trees for Life was getting underway and I began to see the earth responding because the earth responds to love and care. You know, it's heavily impacted in many parts of the planet, particularly Scotland today, but many other places as well. And when we relieve some of the pressures in Scotland, it's having too many deer and sheep eating everything to, down to nothing. When we relieve those pressures, the earth responds and life returns and expands. But at the same time, I've travelled a lot in my life. I've always wanted to experience other cultures and I've made it one of my life missions to visit trees and forests all over the world. And everywhere I've been since the late 70s, you know, I've seen the destruction that's taking place. And of course, I've read about it, see it on television and so forth. And as the forest was beginning to grow through the work I was doing in Scotland, I realised that we need to do this all over the planet. We need to restore not just the Caledonian forest, but we need the Sahel region in Africa and all the tropical rainforests that are being cut down, the coral reefs, the mangroves, uh, the savannas that are being degraded. They all need restoring. But um, I saw that the world was still generally heading in the wrong direction. And, you know, it occurred to me that even if I'm successful to my wildest dreams here in Scotland, you know, with restoring the forest, if nothing else changes in the world, there's no future for this forest in Scotland because once the forests of Amazonia and Borneo are all gone, somebody will say, oh, look, there's that forest that's been growing in Scotland since 1986 and they'll come and cut it down. So I felt like it's not just the the bare, empty glens of Scotland that are calling out for help. The whole planet is calling out for help. And since uh, probably the 1980s at some stage, maybe around the time of the conference, I've had a picture of the Earth taken from space on the wall of my office. One of the ones taken by the Apollo astronauts in 1986, uh, 1968, sorry. And it's one that is used in books and magazines and films because it shows the African continent with some clouds over it. Most pictures of the Earth from space just show cloud and water because we are a water world mostly. But this one shows the outline of the African continent. And one day I looked at it with different eyes and I thought the most obvious feature in this picture is the brown areas, the deserts. And of course, I knew that although deserts are natural ecosystems on the planet, most of the deserts that we see in the world today are desertified areas. They're degraded. It's not by chance that, you know, if you look at the areas where early civilizations, uh, Western civilizations at least, are said to have begun, that's places like Egypt, Persia, uh, the Middle East, the Fertile Crescent, even Greece and places like that. They're all desertified now. So the history of depletion of the war has been going on for thousands of years. And the earth, it seemed to me, through that photograph is calling out for help. It was the same feeling I got when I saw these dying trees in the Highland Glens. Looking at this picture with these new eyes, this is a planet whose capacity to support life is greatly diminished from what it was even 200 years ago or 2,000 years ago. So out of that was born this idea that we need a new vision for humanity for the future. We've never had a single goal that unites all cultures, all nations, all peoples. It's every nation for itself and everyone is still committed to the lunacy, the insanity of endless economic growth. 
we need a more positive vision than that. And I thought, well, the most positive thing we could do, surely the number one priority for all of us is to make sure that the one thing we have in common that we all share, our home planet Earth, is in good health. So my vision, you know, was that the 21st century would become known as the century of restoring the Earth. We've had the United Nations declare things like International Year of Peace, Decade of Indigenous People. This was in the 1990s, I was thinking about this, but nobody's thinking about a century. But we need to think in that. That's also the shift. It's the time scale because most people's horizon is the end of the financial year or the next election. Nobody's thinking on ecological timescales, which are centuries is very small in an ecological timescale. But that's what we need to think, uh, like the native peoples in North America who were thinking for seven generations into the future. So the idea of restore the earth is that humans, people all over the world will come together in this century behind the first shared task of helping our planet heal from all the wounds that we have inflicted on it for at least the past two centuries, but going back in some places, you know, two or three thousand years. Now, what's interesting is I was developing this idea in the late 1990s and with a colleague here at Findhorn, the idea was to get the UN to make this declaration. So we went to uh, Nairobi, we went to UNEP headquarters to talk about it there. We went to the world's first meeting of environment ministers. It was held in Malmo in Sweden in, I think, 2000 and to promote it. But nobody was listening. (laughs) Nobody took it up. So here at Findhorn, we organised a conference in 1992 called Restore the Earth. And we had people come from different parts of the world. We had somebody from Vietnam who's been involved in restoring mangroves in Vietnam after the war there and various things like that. And at the end of that, we decided to take Gandhi at his word. And he said, be the change you want to see in the world. So at the end of that conference, we declared this is the century of restoring the earth. (laughs) (laughs) rather than waiting for the UN, we said, we're going to do this. So after that, I became, you know, Trees for Life was growing and took up my energy. I wasn't able to put as much energy into restoring the earth as I would have liked. But interestingly enough, a couple of years ago, seemingly out of the blue, the nation of El Salvador in Central America, the smallest nation in Latin America, heavily degraded environmentally, made this radical proposal to the UN that they declare a decade of ecological restoration. And as you probably know, that was accepted. And that decade starts next year, 2021, and runs to 2030. Now, I have no, I had no involvement with that. I passed through El Salvador very briefly in 1975. I had no connection with the country apart from that. But somehow, somewhere, they have picked up on this idea and other people have similar ideas, and they've taken it forward, and it's now officially a UN event. And I think the point I'm trying to make here is that, you know, who am I to get to the UN to declare a century of restoring the earth and to have that become the first task of all humanity? Well, who am I not to? And I've I've sowed a seed, and it's like I was describing earlier about the roots of the trees or the hyphae of the fungus. You know, we're all connected now through the internet and through shared ideas and media and all that sort of thing. So these things spread. And, you know, in some way, I've contributed in some form to that happening to El Salvador stepping forward very unexpectedly. They're not a, a nation that you would think of as being an environmental leader, but somehow they did it. So I'm quoting this as an example. You know, I can't claim any credit for that, but I know on some level I have helped that to happen along probably with a lot of other people. So when people think their actions do not count, they do not make a difference, that's not true. They do. Even if we don't see the results immediately, stay true to purpose, stay true to positivity, because that's what the world needs. And it's interesting what you say about ecological timelines. I think one of the things that we've become very accustomed to, certainly in Western civilization, is a speed, an eye-wateringly rapid speed with which we expect everything to happen. You know, everything is instant. Um, I think being steeped in that culture of speed makes it very easy for us to assume that if change doesn't happen immediately, then change isn't happening. I think we really miss the point there because, as you mentioned with the seeds, we might be the generation that plants seeds that will not be ready to even break the surface for one or two generations to come. And yet it doesn't mean that we shouldn't plant those seeds to make the changes we need to make, even you know the smaller ones. And especially when you look at some of the regeneration projects, 
actually sometimes even the reverse is true. So I remember reading in George's book that with the results you had with the area of land that you fenced off, actually that land regenerated much more rapidly than one might have anticipated. So sometimes all it takes is the will and the water-like wisdom to find your way around the obstacles to plant that first seed and then allow things to take their course that we can steward in these other ways of being. And sometimes it happens in quite surprising ways and you know, surprising times. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say, you know, I think you're right on with your comment about, you know, this uh, instant gratification of our modern day culture. We want it all now. And in some places, you know, I think it's it's right to have a, a fast and rapid timescale, but I think it needs to be balanced out by reconnecting with nature and looking at nature cycles and rhythms and that's what we've lost and to me that is the root cause of most of the problems in the world today is that we've lost touch collectively as a species with nature and how nature operates. We've isolated ourselves in cities and towns surrounded by concrete and glass and electric light that separates us from the diurnal rhythm of darkness and light and central heating that removes the seasonality of summer and winter and food systems that mean we can have strawberries at Christmas and all that sort of thing. Uh, it's all serving to further disconnect us from nature and part of that is disconnecting ourselves from the cycles and rhythms of nature and I think it's really important that we we rediscover those connections and that that has to be the foundation for uh, the new truly sustainable culture that I'm hoping and envisaging will emerge from you know, the present crises that we face. In terms of that culture, and if we're talking about things like resilience and regeneration, what are some of the key changes that you feel need to happen for that to be possible? I think the changes have to happen on, on a number of fundamental different levels. One, and perhaps the most important one, is a personal inner level that um, my journey has been about discovering that my sense of well-being, my sense of security, has nothing to do with money, bank accounts, uh, material possessions or anything like that. It has everything to do with how aligned am I with my heart? Am I finding fulfillment in each moment of my day through the work that I do, through the conversations that I have, through my relationships? Um, that is where my happiness and contentment lies. And yes, I need, I need food, I need clothes, I operate with technology, um, I need those things, but it's seeing those as accessories that support me in fulfilling my life purpose, in contributing to the whole, and it's turning society on its head, because at the moment everything is driven by money and by the economy, and that's, that's the drivers, and it's driving us to the cliff edge of destruction. So on one level, that has to change uh, and it has to change on an individual level. It's not something that can be imposed uh, externally um, because that, again, is just going back to the old system of power over. I know better than you and I'm going to tell you what to do. It has to be an awakening from within. And then once that happens for people, it's then finding ways to do fulfilling work that actually make a positive contribution to the world. And that's a big one because I think many people, they currently do a job they don't believe in, but they feel they have to do it because it pays the bills at the end of the month and that's where their security lies. So when you take that step of seeing that security is not there, and of course the current COVID crisis is bringing that message home to a lot of people who are being made redundant or having their hours shortened or um, other changes. It's like they're having to find other ways to sustain themselves. So again, it's this breakdown I was talking about earlier, which is helping to drive the change. So it's finding something meaningful that allows me to express the values of my heart and then getting together with other people who are like-minded, that we can pool our efforts because there's a synergy that takes place then. There's a, a multiplication factor. Two plus two is more than four more than five even. And again, that's why I live in Findhorn, the intentional community. You know, there's 300 of us or so here, but Findhorn has a global impact um, because it stands for something positive and has been doing that since 1962 and has touched, you know, millions of people all over the world. So by being here in this place, and there's many other communities or groups or centres, it doesn't need to be a community, but when you pull your efforts with others, 
uh, it magnifies it many fold. And that, again, I think, is how the world is going to change. We're, we're not going to get uh, tomorrow we're going to have an election and we're going to get an enlightened leader who changes all the policies and things. Sorry, it's not going to work that way. I think it's very clear the leaders we've got are taking us and trying to hold us back in the past because that's the only way the system knows. So it has to come from somewhere else. So it's finding a community of like-minded people to pull your strengths and passions, to magnify that, and then linking up, sharing expertise, uh, and making a positive difference, you know, through the way we live. Every action counts. I haven't really touched on it yet, but part of the empowerment I've gone through too is looking at how can I make my living experience a reflection of my values. So, for example, I chose to become vegetarian in 1978 and vegan in 1979 because I had seen firsthand the rainforest being cut down in South and Central America to create cattle pasture for so-called cheap hamburgers. And, you know, I'd, I'd seen it and I'd campaigned against it, but it was like, if I'm a meat eater, I'm supporting that. I don't want to support it. And I discovered that having a plant-based diet needed 10% of the land area that a meat-based diet does. So I thought, if I, if I choose to become vegan, I can free up a lot of land somewhere that forests can stay and we can restore them and wildlife can live and so forth. So it's about making those changes. So I have a garden. I grow some of my own produce. Virtually all my food is organic. I live in an ecologically designed house that's powered by our community wind turbines. My wife and I bought an electric car last year, which is charged up from our wind turbines. So we're trying as much as possible to make our daily living experience a statement of this is what we believe in. This is what we want to see in the world. As Gandhi said, be the change you want to see. So rather than waiting for other people, you know, it's like, what steps can I take at each moment in my life that help me bring that vision of that world I want to see closer to reality? And in doing that, I can hopefully inspire others as well. Actually, I was going to ask you what question do you want people to dwell with right now, but it sounds like maybe that's the question. It's certainly one question, yes. I think the question I would say to them is, you know, what change can you make right now that will allow your heart to express more fully in your life? What will allow you to express more love? Uh, is it changing your work? Is it doing something different in your relationship? Is it paying more attention to uh, your houseplants or your pet? You know, those are all things that we can choose consciously to give love to. And that brings more love in the world. And that's what we urgently need because fear and greed are rampant at the moment and they're being uh, amplified by the media and the system because that's all they know. And, you know, a lot of people are pointing that out and campaigning against it. That's fine. That needs to happen. But what we also crucially need is more love anchored in the physical material of the world. And everybody can do that. They can make some beautiful craft item that they give as a gift to you know, a friend or a, a loved one or a family member. That is embodying love. Also, washing the dishes with care and appreciation, you know, for the mug or the plate. Thank you for holding my food or my drink before I ate or drank it, rather than just it's a chore to be done, you know, while I'm thinking about something else. <laughs> we can make those conscious choices individually, each one of us, every day. I'm thinking also, because this conversation will be going out in the run-up to Christmas, another way to show love and care is to support the people who are on the front lines of helping to make these changes. And one of the things I would like to shout out on your behalf is the beautiful calendar that you've created called Forests Forever, which is helping to support you in your work given the turbulence of this year. Um, I will include the link in the show notes, but if you're listening and you want to help support Alan's work, you can search for him at alanwatsonfeatherstone.com and then search in the product section. Uh, and that's where you'll find the Forests Forever perpetual calendar and they are beautiful images oh thank you and i just wanted to weave that in before i ask you the final question just just mention not just images but there's inspiring quotes by people who've been touched by nature so it's a daily inspiration for people a picture and a quote every day that mm, that's beautiful if people live in a city or somewhere not directly connected with nature you can still have it on your desk <laughs> <laughs> Well, especially for someone who lives in a flat, so that's quite nice. Might mm -hmm. get myself one. It's going to be on my list. 
Um, so before we close this conversation, because I realise we are coming to our hour, and you have touched on this in various different moments of our conversation, but to your point about the moment of fear and sense of overwhelm and chaos that we're living through right now, given that we're immersed in so much of it, it can be very difficult to find places and people who hold the space for a different vision to emerge. I think that with this season of the podcast, that's something that I would like to help to create. And so the question that I'd like to end on is what vision of the world would you like to hold for other people right now? Hmm. Well, that's, that's a, a good question. I guess the answer in this moment to me is that people will look increasingly inside themselves for answers. We live in a culture where we're led to believe that knowledge has to be learned. So we go to school, we go to university, some of us, to be educated. But actually, if you look at the root of the word education, it comes from Latin, uh, ducare, which is to lead, and educare, which is to lead out. So actually, the true meaning of the word education is to draw out, to bring forth that which is within. And when we take time to look within, every one of us has access to deep sources of wisdom and knowledge. If we know how to look for it, to be still, to breathe, to let go of externalities and focus inwards. And when people start to do that, that is when they can then change themselves and their actions in the world. They can become self-motivated, they can become empowered, and they can start to actualize a positive vision for their own lives and therefore a contribution to the world. And as we're coming up to Christmas at this time, it's a great time because it is in the Northern Hemisphere, it's the inward time of the year. It's the dark time of year. It's the time to turn within naturally. And, you know, we have all this thing about, you know, Christmas lights. And that's a symbol, an external symbol for finding the inner light, the light of spirit, the light of truth that we each carry inside ourselves. And my task in my life is to find that inner light inside myself and to share it as fully as I can through my actions, through my words, uh, through my life. And if we each do that, that will transform the planet. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. To find out more about today's guest and the topics we explored, you can visit the show notes page at natalienahai.com forward slash the hive podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating or review as it helps to reach new ears. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.